American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Welcome to another fucking stupid episode of Shitty Stupid Podcast. No. It sucks. <laughs> And it's my bitch wife. Say that. No, welcome, welcome to, to another episode. No. Welcome to a stupid episode of. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. I'm Amy. That's Joe. And this is the greatest podcast That's ever. That's better attitude. And you are, you listeners are the greatest, See? smartest, and best podcast listeners on the planet. I knew you could do it. Everybody else is a stupid idiot that doesn't listen to this podcast. And you're smart because you listen to this. Thank you for listening. Right. You excellent, excellent people. Right. If you're listening right now, you are a great person, and you are going to change the world for the better, and you are invincible, probably. Yeah. Well, no. I don't want to say you're invincible. Don't go, like, taking okay. bullets and stuff. We are- but We love you. Uh, we are going to delve <coughs> back into 1953. Yes. This is American Timelines, the podcast where we go through, we slowly trudge through history- Month by month, and talk about the bullshit. Yes, terrible stuff that happens. Cool stuff that happens. I'll tell you what was on TV while Amy's talking about a guy who was raping someone with their eyes gouged out or something. Okay. So, what are we going to talk about first? Well, we are in March. March, right? We're going to try to cover two months. Yeah. So go quick. We're still on vacation. We're still on vacation. Uh, but we're not at the cabin at the lake anymore. We're transitioning home tomorrow. Amy goes home, and I go on a business trip. That's right. To podcast movement in Nashville, Tennessee. But we are gonna. So we we got a little bit more research done. March and April, we're gonna try to cover. Right. Okay. Let's go. Fifty-three. Fifty. Fifty. March first, nineteen fifty-three was a Sunday. Okay. Okay. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. Joseph Stalin suffers a stroke mm-hmm. after an all-night dinner with Soviet Union Interior Minister Lavrentiy Beria and future premiers Georgi Malenkov, Nikolai Bolgenin, and Nikita Khrushchev. I mean, really? Could you have at least looked up some of the I did. I looked up all of them. The stroke paralyzes the right side of his body and renders him unconscious Yes, until his death on the 5th. Right. And I don't know if you know this, but uh, according to, or maybe his death was on the 3rd, <coughs> because I have something on March 3rd, 1953, the first radio operator to pick up news of Stalin's death mm-hmm. in the United States was future rock pioneer Johnny Cash. Say that again. The first radio operator to pick up news of Stalin's death. Was Johnny Cash? The first American to hear about it happening was Johnny Cash, who was serving with the U.S. Air Force in Germany in 1953. How weird is that? Yeah, that is weird. Like, that is a little piece of trivia. If you told me, Johnny Cash was the first American to find out about Stalin dying. Uh, According to wearethemighty.com, at the age of 18 in 1950... J.R. Cash, as he was known at the time, joined the Air Force and was forced to change his name to John. 
He rose through the ranks and served as a Morse code operator. Mm-hmm. He spent much of his time quickly decoding communications between Soviet officials. On March 3rd, he was a staff sergeant manning his post in Landsberg, Germany, when a surprising message beeped into his ears. Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin, who had suffered from ill health for years, had died. The leader of Russia had suffered a massive heart attack that day and died quickly. <clears throat> the man in black passed the message up the chain and returned to work. Cash's job already required that he have limited off-post privileges and contact with locals. Still, he couldn't discuss what happened, even with his close friends. The rest of the world would soon learn of Stalin's death and the ascent of Georgi Malenkov. Okay. Malenkov, I think it is. Malenkov, Zabadam, Banazadam, Malenkov, 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 Zabababa, Malenkov. It's Malenkov. I don't okay. think you, I don't think, I think Billy Joel knows how to pronounce it better than you. So. All right. Let's Sorry, move on. Sorry, babe. You should listen to more. We didn't start the fire. Anyway, I don't know why that first thing on Wikipedia said he died March 5th, but this said March 3rd. So. Um, only the lonely will ever know. Mm-hmm. March 7th, 1953. Here's a little story for you. Okay. An Austrian named Inge Sargent. Okay. I-N-G-A. Inge? Probably Inga. Inga. Inga Sargent got married. hmm But it turns out she didn't really know the guy she was marrying all that well. Mm. So let's back up a little bit on Inga. She was born in... Uh, in 1932, in Austria, when she was six years old, the Nazis invaded her home mm-hmm. in Carnton and even arrested her mother three times. After World War II, life was hard in Austria, and she decided to study in the U.S. In 1951, she won one of the first Austrian Fulbright scholarships and enrolled at a Colorado Women's College. So here she is in the yeah. United States in Colorado, okay? And then, so she's at a party in college for international students, and she meets a fella named Sao Kaya Seng, a Burmese engineering student from the Colorado School of Mines. Mm-hmm. She falls in love with him. Mines or mimes? Mines, not mime. Not okay. a school for mines. Okay. Mines, okay. M-I-N-E. She fell in love, and they're mm-hmm. married at the home of a friend in Colorado on March 7th, 1953, this date. They're get, they get married. Okay. After Sao Kaiasang graduated, the couple sailed to Burma to start their new life. Okay. So when they arrived at the port of Rangoon, she sees hundreds of people gathered to greet oh boy. her and him and wave and wave. It was then that her husband told the truth that he was, was the, the, prince king, the prince of Hishipa. Hishipa? God. Hisipa? You're lazy ass. H-S-I-P-A-W. How do you pronounce that? Well, I would look it up. What do you think I got? All day? We don't. Uh, keep moving. All right. We'll look it up. Shipa. Sipa. She became Mahadevi of Hisipa. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> what? Mahadevi of Hisipa? <laughs> Mahadevi. Shipa. 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 Okay. She became the Mahadevi of Shipa. Anyway, so how about that for a surprise that you're a Yeah, that would be really cool. Yeah. Uh, And then it was real tragic from there. Um, There was like a war. Yeah. Um, Let's see. In 1962, the Burmese army staged a coup 
under the leadership of General Nay Win. Ooh. And uh, the prince her was husband ousted. was arrested and imprisoned. She and her two daughters were put on house arrest. Um, and then, so after he he was killed in oh, prison, no. and then later, so she she lived with her parents for a couple of years, and then returned to Colorado, and became a high school German teacher oh at Centennial Junior High School Whoa. and Fairview High School, both in Boulder, Colorado. Oh Can you imagine God. if you're if you found out that your your teacher, German teacher yeah used to be a princess was a princess. That nuts. That is crazy. And then on Sunday, March eighth, nineteen fifty three, the Thieves World. Oh, all of that was all on just Wikipedia. That's where I, okay. I think I found all that. Um, so it could be wrong. It could be incorrect. Mm-hmm. March eighth, nineteen fifty three was a Sunday. The Thieves World, which had been transformed into the Russian Mafia, mm-hmm. are freed from prisons. They're all Russian Mafia members who are in in prisons. They are freed from prisons by the Malin. Malenkov regime, which ends the bitch wars. <laughs> the bitch wars? You ever hear of the bitch wars? No. So a little quick background on the bitch wars. The Russian word suka, literally meaning bitch, has a different negative connotation than its English equivalent. In Russian criminal argo, it specifically refers to a person from the criminal world who had made oneself a bitch by cooperating in any way with law enforcement or with the government. So we call them rats here, but okay. they call them a bitch there. You Bitch. Uh, but within the Soviet, uh, oh, yeah, they, yeah so they don't like anybody snitching or ratting. So as the Second World War progressed, Joseph Stalin made an offer to many prisoners that in exchange for military service, they would be granted a pardon or a reduction of their prison term at the end of the war. After the war ended, many of those that had taken up this offer returned to prisons and labor camps, but were declared suki, mm-hmm. or bitches, and placed on the lower end of the prisoner hierarchy. As a result, they sought to survive through collaboration with prison officials and in return got some of the better jobs within the prison. This led to an internal prison war between mm-hmm. them and the leaders of the Russian criminal underground, or thieves in law. Many prisoners died in the bitch war, but prison authorities turned a blind eye since prisoner deaths reduced the overall prison population. Mm. There you go, the bitch wars. Okay. Now you know. <laughs> and that brings us to March 19th, 1953, when the Academy Awards... Yeah. Uh, were held the 25th Academy Award ceremony, and the first one broadcast on television. Oh, yeah, it took place at the RKO Pantages Theater in Hollywood, and the NBC International Theater in New York City it was the f- uh, first one to be held in Hollywood, and New York simultaneously. Also, the only year that the New York ceremonies were to be held in the NBC International Theater in Columbus Circle which was shortly thereafter demolished and replaced by the New York Coliseum Convention Center. All Aren't right. you excited about that? Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Anyway, a major Center. upset occurred at these Academy Awards when the heavily favored High Noon lost to Cecil B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on oh, Earth. That shit show. That was a shit show. Eventually considered among the worst films to have won the Academy Awards yes, for Best Picture. I would that say. film sucks. It does suck. Um the biggest snub, I think, was also uh, Singing in the Rain. Um, High Noon's a good movie. It was also nominated. I don't know if I saw that. That's a good one. Uh, because both High Noon and Singing in, the Rain, Singing in the Rain would later show up on the AFI Institute's mm-hmm. Greatest Films. Yeah. the top. Not the Greatest whatever. Show on Earth. Yeah, and, and not the Greatest Show on Earth, and it didn't even win an Oscar, so it's kind of dumb. Anyway, 
March 27th, 1953. We're going to jump towards the end of March now. Okay. It was a Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 1950s. Pronounced Friday. Friday. The 1953, you want to get Hamburgs in Dundee? That's what my grandma used to say. The 1953 New York Central Railroad accident occurs Ooh. on the four-track main line, 2.4 miles east of Conneaut, Ohio, Ooh. at 10.02 p.m. Uh, uh, the accident sequence began when an improperly secured load of large pipes broke loose from a gondola car Ooh. on an eastbound freight train. A loose pipe dragged by the moving train damaged the westbound passenger track. A passing westbound freight train crew notified the first train and stopped to assess what had happened. A fast westbound passenger train could not stop and derailed from the damaged track, colliding with the westbound freight on the adjacent track. Finally, an eastbound fast passenger train struck the derailed equipment from the first two trains. There were 21 deaths and 49 people were injured. This accident holds the record for the most trains involved in a single accident. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a train, train pile up. everywhere. That's yeah. crazy. It's, I think our son acted that out when he was about three. He used to crash trains yeah. together all yeah, the time. Like, like crashing. Yeah. Uh, March 28th, 1953. We're going to see him. We're zooming through March already. Yeah, I know it. Following athlete Jim Thorpe's death. Remember we talked about Jim yeah. Thorpe a couple times? He was like mm-hmm. the all-around athlete of everything. Native Wasn't he Native American, I thought we said? That could be wrong. Anyway, after Jim Thorpe died, his widow was upset that his native Oklahoma would not memor- memorialize him. Hearing hearing of a town called Mouch Chunk, Mock Chunk probably, M-A-U-C-H, Mock Chunk, in Pennsylvania that was desperate for money, she and others convinced them to name the new town Jim Thorpe. Oh. P.A. Jim Thorpe P.A., which is still called to this day. And that way really? he was memorialized. And then on Sunday, March 29, 1953, there was a fire mm-hmm. at the Littlefield Nursing Home in Largo, Florida, killing 33 people, including singer-songwriter Arthur Fields. Really? You know who Arthur Fields is? No. I do not. Neither do I. <laughs> this is riveting. So some singer-songwriter, we don't know, but there's somebody listening. I'm sure that's like, oh, that's how Arthur Fields died in a nursing home fire. But from uh, usdeadlyevents.com, 32 patients and a nurse were trapped and killed by fire at the Littlefields Nursing Home near Largo, Florida that occurred that morning. In addition, one of a group of rescued patients being transported by car to a hospital suffered fatal injuries when the vehicle was involved in an accident and the driver of the car was killed. So not only a fire, you're trying to save somebody from the fire by driving them away, and then you get an accident and die. Yeah, really. So basically I'll save eight more paragraphs by just telling you that uh, back then in rural Florida, Mm -hmm. there weren't a lot of fire codes. And the whole... (laughs) You can say that again. Yeah, the whole nursing home was built in like particle board. Oh, my God. Like fiber board. Yeah, just went up like a match. Yeah, and there was no like... It was very rural, so there was no water to get oh, the fire man. fighters had no access to fire water. water. They only had like a couple, like chemical um, uh, fire extinguishers that couldn't really do anything. So, and there was like no ins- inspections, no coat. Like, oh my god, they had to have a well or something. Well, yeah, land. I'm not sure, but they, they they had no quick way to get water. Yeah, there. and they said that uh, like employees would smoke cigarettes all the time and everybody you weren't supposed to it wasn't up to code oh. they were like they everybody would just wink and nod and let them do it so and that's what yeah happens. So the nursing home old people dying so 
We got like <laughs> I have like twelve pages about this fire for some reason. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, if, if the, but basically, all the old people were so old and demented and out of it that yeah, they they just laid in their beds like they didn't oh, know what to do. They didn't react. Things. They just like kind of like were shocked and didn't do anything. So Hopefully, was, they didn't know what was going on. Yeah, and that some were bedridden. Horrific anyway, way to die. Get out. Yeah. 15 mile per hour wind, flaming wind, Ugh. went through the highly combustible building. Yeah, so holy but moly! That brings us to your oh shit, your story, and you don't look ready. Oh shit! Oh, and you're pissed, and that's that's I'm pretty pissed. much March. We're into April now. We already did so, one month. I'm going to tell the tale of the blood pool poisoner. The blood pool poisoner. Yes. Louisa May Merrifield was a British murderer and the third to last woman to be hanged in the United Kingdom. She's the third to what? Third to last woman to be hanged. Third to last yeah. woman to be hanged. Yep. Okay. And she's the blood pool poisoner? Yeah. She, blood pool poisoner. She was executed at Strangeways Prison in Manchester for poisoning okay. her elderly employer. Ooh. Notorious at the time as the blood pool poisoner. Today, her case is largely forgotten. Okay. So she was born in Wigan in Lancashire, Lancashire as Louisa May Highway on December 3rd, 1906. Oh, wait. She was born the same day that Teddy Roosevelt gave, gave the State of the Union address? Yes. Wow. And she was the youngest of five surviving daughters and two sons of Joe, Job Highway. An under, Job Highway. An underground laborer. I'm an underground laborer. Job Highway, see? In a coal mine, and Emma Duncan. Okay. And by the time of her execution, she had been married three times. Okay. So she married her first husband, who's Joseph Ellison, right. in 1931. Right. And with him, she had six children. Two of whom, Horace and Ernest, died in infancy. <laughs> I love those. I oh, I'm not laughing that they died in infancy. No, it's Horace I'm and just Ernest. laughing at the old names like Horace. Yeah. Horace. She lost custody of all four of her surviving two daughters and two sons when she really? was sent to prison for 84 days in 1946, having been found guilty of ration book fraud wow. and refusing to pay the 10-pound fine. So ration book fraud would be basically she was not rationing like she was supposed to. Well, she wrote down that she was. Probably. No, she, you had to have ration coupons for to, to get things like gas and oil and stockings and chocolate and things like that. Yeah. And if you, she was must have been making counterfeit ration Coupons, or but don't you get those by rationing? Like you can only use and so much. Well, you can't buy it with money. You have to use yeah. the coupons. Yeah. So she must have been making fake ones. Stealing them or getting them or. So, or people only ration <clears throat> gave you those coupons. So then Joseph Ellison, her her husband, ration. died in 1949, age 44, of subacute infective hepatitis. Oh. So then she married 78 year old Richard Weston on February 6th, 1950. Oh, February 6, 1950, they got married the same night that Lights Out was on NBC. It was an extremely popular American old-time radio program, an early example of a network series devoted mostly to horror and the supernatural, predating suspense and inner sanctum. Versions of Lights Out aired on different networks at various times mm -hmm. and then eventually made the transition to television. It was on TV okay. that day. Yeah. And he died 10 weeks later of a heart attack. Oh, yep. 10 weeks after they got married? Yep, that was number two, husband Whoa. number two. So then, 
from 1950 up until the time of the murder, she had some 20 jobs working as a domestic helper and housekeeper, for most of which she had been fired or forced to leave, oh. owing to her poor attitude to her work and her alleged pilfering. Uh-oh. So stealing. This lady's a ba- I know what pilfering is. I think our so, listeners do, too. This lady is a bad seed. So I'm on August 22nd, 1950, yeah. she married her third husband, 68-year-old widower Alfred Edward Merrifield. She married Alfred Edward Merrifield the same night that the original Amateur Hour was on NBC? Yes. Wow. And um, his first wife, Alice Whittle, had died in 1949. Oh. He had abandoned her and their 10 children in 1928, though. Oh. So he hadn't been around her That's not cool, time. bro. So then... On March 12th, 1953... Oh, the same day that Ron Jeremy was born? Porn star Ron Jeremy was born? The couple were employed as housekeeper, handyman, and live-in companions to 79-year-old Sarah Ann Ricketts. They were hired the same day that this greasy porn star was born. Yes. A baby greasy porn star. Um, And they lived in her bungalow at 339 Devonshire Road in Blackpool. Okay. So this... Sarah Ricketts, that's her yeah. name, the old lady. That's who they work for, this old lady named Sarah Ricketts. Ricketts was a widow whose two husbands had both committed suicide by gassing themselves in the kitchen. About what? By what? By gassing themselves Gassing in the themselves, kitchen. they both put their heads in the oven? Yes. Sheesh. Despite her diminutive height, she was only four feet, eight inches tall. Ricketts tiny. was a difficult woman with a short <laughs> temper who had a habit of changing her will whenever a beneficiary annoyed or upset her, which was often. <laughs> I love this lady. Soon after the Merrifields took up their jobs, Ricketts was complaining about their lack of care toward her, Uh-oh. the shortage of food, and that they were spending a lot of her money in the local public houses, where Louisa yes. drank excessively and habitually became <clears throat> severely inebriated. Yes. Are you, you know, why wouldn't you? And I can see what's happening, about to happen. So a liar and a braggart who had a loose tongue <laughs> when under the influence of alcohol, Louisa Merrifield preferred to spend her time in the pubs of Blackpool rather than take care of her employer. She was a liar and a braggart? Yeah. She began to brag that Mrs. Ricketts was dead and had left her the bungalow, even though the old woman was still very much alive. And everybody sees her all the time. Yeah. It was becoming apparent to Louisa Merrifield that her elderly husband would not be able to support her financially for much longer. And by late March 1953, she had talked Mrs. Ricketts into writing a will which left the bungalow, valued at 3,000 pounds, to her. Which nowadays is worth more than nine gazillion pounds. Yep. And a pound is equal to, I don't know, three cakes. Buck 25 or something. On the complaint of Alfred Merrifield that he was not included in in the will, he was assigned half the property. Okay. Okay, So she's got to split it with him now. Yeah. On April 9th, Louisa Merrifield got Mr. Mrs. Ricketts' doctor, Dr. Yule, to certify that Ricketts was mentally competent to make a new will. Oh, just to prove. Dr. Yule later stated... Maryfield said the reason why she wanted me to go was that the old lady might die at any minute with a stroke of a dis- or a disease, and she wanted to keep herself all right with the relatives. And uh, on April 13th, Dr. Ewell's partner, Dr. Albert Victor Wood, was called out by Maryfield, who stated that Ricketts was seriously ill. Oh. But then Wood merely diagnosed mild bronchitis, and he later testified at Maryfield's trial that he remonstrated with Mrs. Maryfield for calling me out, as I thought, under false pretenses. She again said she was afraid of something happening during the night. Mrs. Merrifield mentioned something about a will. I said I wasn't interested. On that April 13th when he called her out. Yeah. 
Uh, that was the same day that the CIA agency director Alan Dulles mm-hmm. authorized the MK Ultra project. That, cool. The agency launches one of its most dubious covert programs ever, turning oh, unsuspected humans into that. guinea pigs for its research into mind-altering drugs. You could have told me that. Well, I you had already gave me the date when I found that. Oh. Mrs. Merrifield mentioned something about a will. I said I wasn't interested. So, although this evidence is only circumstantial, it does lead to the conclusion that Merrifield was already trying to prove that the elderly Mrs. Ricketts was dying of natural causes. Okay. Because among her other rather odd eating habits, Mrs. Ricketts enjoyed eating sweet jam straight from the jar by spoon, (laughs) which she took with either rum or a bottle of stout. (laughs) She drinks a big stout beer, big dark beer and jelly by the bowl or some rum. That's great. I love Mrs. Ricketts. So Maryfield, Louisa Maryfield had added rhodine, which is a phosphorus-based rat poison, which she bought in a local chemist to the jams. On April 12th, 1953, Maryfield told her friend, Mrs. Jessie Brewer, that she had to return home to lay out an old woman. On, On Mrs. Brewer's inquiry as to who had died, Maryfield said, she's not dead yet, but she soon will be. Whoa. Mrs. Ricketts died like on the voice. evening of April 14th, but Maryfield did not call for a doctor until the next morning, claiming oh. that as Miss Ricketts was clearly dead, she had not wished to call the doctor out late at night. Yeah, so she, she, and she may have gotten too enthralled in the TV show Two for the Money, which is a game show, yeah, uh, which ran from 52 to 57 on NBC and four seasons on CBS. It was a Mark Goodson, Bill Todman production, mm-hmm. uh, originally sponsored by Old Gold Cigarettes. Okay. Hosted by humorist Herb Schreiner. So she asked, Maryfield asked the local Salvation Army band to stand outside the bungalow and play Abide With Me while, while, um. It's a song? Miss Rick, yeah. While oh. Miss Ricketts was, was in the, being laid out. Oh, yeah. Um, like she insisted that Miss Ricketts be quickly cremated, then that she did not want the old lady's family to know of her sudden death. Funeral director George Henry Jackson later stated that Maryfield did not want Ricketts, two daughters, to know she was dead or have anything to do with the funeral. Really? On reading of the death in the local newspaper, Mrs. Brewer reported her conversation with Maryfield to the police, who immediately ordered a postmortem, which discovered that Ricketts had died of a phosphorus poisoning, likely from the rat poison rhodine. Yep. When the police searched the bungalow, they didn't find any poison, but inquiries at a local chemist's revealed that Louisa Maryfield had recently purchased Rodine, for which she was legally required to sign the poison register. Oh, the poison register. Yes. So following the police investigation, the Maryfields were arrested and were jointly charged with murder before being committed for trial. Okay. The couple were tried um, in July 1953, and th- there's a lot of names in here, so I'm skimming past some of them. She did not give a good impression with her photograph being on the front page of newspapers as she arrived at court every day in a taxi, smiling and waving to the photographers and crowds outside the court. Really? During the trial, the largely deaf Alfred Merrifield appeared to be confused by the proceedings, while his wife, who was confident she would be acquitted, seemed to be reveling in the attention. She liked it. Three doctors testified against Louisa Merrifield, as did several of her friends who recalled her boasts of an inheritance. To one of her many previous employers, Maryfield had written, I got a nice job nursing an old lady, and she left me a lovely little bungalow, and thank God for it. So you see, love all comes right in the end. (laughs) That's pretty good. Unfortunately for Maryfield's case, the letter was dated two weeks before Ricketts had actually died. Oh, oh, that's a little bit of a problem. Maryfield's friend, Mrs. Jessie Brewer, testified that three days before Ricketts died, Maryfield told her, 
we're landed. We went. We want to live with an old lady, and she died, and she's left me a bungalow worth four thousand pounds. It was all left to me until that old bugger got talking to her, and then that it was left bugger. to us jointly. I made everything all right. It cost me two pounds to get a doctor to prove she was in her right mind. Under cross-examination, Brewer was adamant that these conversations had placed the death of Ricketts in the past tense. Elizabeth Baraclow, who was with a complete stranger to Louisa... Are you sure it's not pronounced Baraclaw? Yeah. Testified that while waiting in a bus queue, Louisa had told her that she was very worried because she was looking after an old lady who was very ill. And after returning the previous day, had found her husband in bed with the old lady and was what? messing around with her and this had got her vexed. He was banging Mrs. Ricketts, according that's, to her? That's according to Louisa. You think it's a lie? Yeah. She's quoted as having said, If this goes on again, I'll poison the old bugger and him in as well. She's leaving me the bungalow between me and my husband, but he's so greedy he wants it all on his own. That's pretty good. Professor J.N. Webster was called as an expe- expert witness on behalf of the Merrifields, and he stated that in his opinion, Mrs. Ricketts had not died for poisoning, but from the necrosis of the liver. However, the damage was already done, and after oh. deliberating for just six hours, the jury found Louisa Merrifield guilty of murder. Really? Even that expert said it not... Well, that was they had yeah. experts on their side, oh, too. Oh, okay. The judge described her crime as wicked and cruel, a murder as I've ever heard tell of. The jury were unable to reach a verdict on Alfred Merrifield, who the judge described as a tragic simpleton, and he was uh, acquitted and eventually what, released from what, prison. What am I doing, hey? The evidence against the Merrifields was largely circumstantial, but what little there was had been exacerbated by Louisa's actions and her boasts of an inheritance while Ricketts was still living. It had been Louisa who had called the doctor to verify that Ricketts was well enough to sign a new will, and it was she who had called the doctors out claiming Ricketts was near death when she was actually just unwell. Uh When Louisa accused Ricketts of betting Alfred, the judge called her a vulgar and stupid woman with a very (laughs) dirty mind. If the accusation is true, it is more likely that Alfred Merrifield was sexually abusing Ricketts. Mm. However, Alfred Merrifield had the same motives and opportunities as his wife. It may have been Alfred who had bought the Rodine. It was Alfred who refused to contact the solicitor with when Ricketts wanted to write the Merrifields out of her will, saying it was too far for him, and Alfred, who refused the doctor admittance to attending on the ailing Ricketts by pushing the dining table against the sickbed while he ate lunch. What? Days before her execution, Louisa and Alfred were reconciled, and she was visited in the condemned cell by her husband, to whom she said, Goodbye, Alfie. Look after yourself, and God bless. So, Louisa Merrifield was originally sentenced to be hanged, on August 18th, 1953. Oh, so she was sent, scheduled to be hanged when the second Kinsey report of sexual, sexual behavior in the human females published in the U.S. Oh, that's titillating. Yeah. T- but t- she appealed t- against her verdict. This was dismissed by the Court of Criminal Appeal in September 1953. Um, and after they refused a reprieve, she was hanged on the morning of September 18th, 1953. She was hanged the same night that... On the Schlitz Playhouse of Stars, a crime-bent college student's carefully laid plans for robbery. Uh, boomerang. Mm-hmm. Sorry. A crime-bent college student's carefully laid plans for robbery, Boomerang, starring John Drew Barrymore, Tommy Cook, and Will Wright. Okay. While she's being hung. On the gallows, she refused to remove her glasses when requested. A crowd of several hundred gathered outside the prison to read the, the official notice of her death. Pierpont later stated that the hanging went very well. She said goodbye to the death cell officers, much better than I imagined. Louisa May Merrifield was the fourth and last woman to be executed at Strangeways Prison and the third to last woman to be hanged in the UK. As was the practice, her body was buried in an unmarked grave along, out, alongside other 
executed felons within the prison walls of Strangeways. During rebuilding work at the prison in 1991, following a recent riot, the remains of 63 executed prisoners, of which 45 were identifiable, including Merrifield, were exhumed from the prison cemetery and cremated at Blakeney Crematorium in Manchester. Really? And then they were reinterred in two grave plots in the adjoining cemetery. With their, just their ashes were Mm -hmm. reinterred? In her will, she left 45 pounds to her son, Oswald Ellison, a bricks work laborer. Following his wife's execution, the tragic simpleton Alfred Merrifield suddenly became very astute and continued to live at the bungalow while he fought a legal battle with Ricketts' daughters for a share of its value, really? gaining one-sixth in 1956. Really? He then lived in a caravan and became a regular attraction at Blackpool's Golden Mile Beachfront Sideshow, billed <laughs> as the murderess's <laughs> husband talking about his wife and the murder of Mrs. Ricketts. Really? <laughs> he donated awesome. some of her clothes to Louise Tussaud's Blackpool Chamber of Horrors and was paid 200 pounds for his own waxwork to stand beside hers. Alfred Merrifield died on June 24th, 1962 at age 80. He always maintained he was unaware of his wife's activities and told crime writer Richard Whittington Egan that the old bugger would never would the old bugger would have poisoned him next for his share of the bungalow. That's probably true. And that's the story of the Bloodpool Poisoner. That was very good. Do you have um, do you have uh, references? Wikipedia uh, and Murderpedia. Okay, that's I'm good. I'm on vacation. You're on vacation, yeah, so it's just that. That was good. All Those right. were good. That All was right, very good. good. I love your voices. Thanks. You did a very good job. I want to sleep with Mrs. Ricketts and Louisa now, so we'll be doing some role-playing. I love Mrs. Ricketts. No, that's great. You were great. Uh, that was great. Thank you. And now let's quickly finish April. Okay, let's do precisely. it. Precisely. I mean, not precisely, but... Proficiently. What's the... Profi- uh, what's the no, it's... Fast. Concisely. Okay. April 10th, 1953, House of Wax, because you just mentioned wax, uh, the first color 3D movie premieres in New York. Oh. Directed by Andre Detoth, a remake of Warner Brothers' Mystery of the Wax Museum from 1933. The film stars Vincent Price as a disfigured sculptor mm-hmm. who repopulates his destroyed wax museum by murdering people and using their wax-coated corpses as displays. Oh, wow. It premiered in New York on April 10th and had a general release on April 25th. It was the first color 3D feature film from an American studio. So how about that? Awesome. And then that same day, the NBA Championship Finals we're in Minneapolis Auditorium, Minnesota. Minneapolis Lakers beat the New York Knicks 91 to 84 for a 4-1 to series victory. It's the Lakers' fifth title in 6 years and the Lakers should have never left Minneapolis because there's no fucking lakes in LA. Right. Sorry. April 16, 1953 was a Thursday. President Eisenhower delivers his Chance for Peace speech to the National Association of News National Association of Newspaper Editors. Do you know what that is? The Chance for Peace no. speech? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Because that same day, it were too busy. A four-story building in Chicago belonging to the Haber Corporation catches fire, killing 35 employees. Ooh. Now, this is at North and Clybourne, where the, yeah. like the, where the Crate and Barrel is now, I think. Okay. And, uh, I know that. Yeah, there's something else there, too, that's... Uh, Pretty well known. I can't remember. So I think it's where our buddy Ryan from yeah. the music video podcast worked. Uh, according to ConnectingTheWindyCity.com, 62 employees punched the time clock that morning, but construction was taking place inside the building, and estimates put 100 persons inside the structure when the explosion and Ooh. subsequent fire began. 
After that initial explosion on the first floor of the three-story factory, the fire spread so quickly that witnesses said the whole building was in flames within five minutes. The first alarm was turned in at 8.47 a.m. The firemen of the 3rd Battalion arrived less than three minutes later. The battalion chief, Frank Frank Thielman, (laughs) the battalion chief, Frank Thielman, described what he saw upon arrival. I see the flame was shooting out each of the 14 second floor windows. The sight was awful. It was fury. We couldn't get in to fight the fire. People were running wildly out of the building, saying more were inside. Others were jumping down from the third floor windows onto the roof of the one-story building adjoining on the east. That was in the Chicago Tribune on April 17, 1953. By 9 a.m., a 5:11 alarm was sounded bringing 59 pieces of fire equipment to the scene, ambulances, police squadrons, even police cars uh, were pressed into service to carry victims to five different hospitals. Electricity was turned off in a 20-square-block area surrounding the scene. Ventilating fans were placed on their highest setting in the subway because of the smoke. Mm-hmm. A mechanic, Ted Mechneck, Ted Mechneck <laughs> was a mechanic. That can't be. He had just left his parked car on the way to work at a local business when the initial explosion occurred. Mm-hmm. Glass flew all over the street, he said. What? It, glass flew all over oh. the street, he said. In just a second, it uh, in just a second, it seemed fire burst out all the second floor windows. In another second, a woman jumped from the third floor window to the roof of the one and a half story receiving department. Then a man jumped and turned to catch others as they jumped. Ten or fifteen was to jump that way, but the smoke was so dense it was hard to tell the exact number. A man appeared at the third at a third story window. His clothing was either burned or blown off. Not sure which. <laughs> An inspector on the third floor assembly line, Florence Hayslip, said from her hospital bed at Augustana Hospital, We heard a tremendous explosion which shook the whole building. I ran with about 60 other women for the fire escape. Some of the women were screaming in panic. I saw I wasn't going to be able to reach the fire escape, so I climbed through a window, hung by my hands, and dropped. Even as the recovery effort was continuing, Coroner Walter E. McCarran appointed a jury... Of a dozen men that held its first meeting on April 17th, within a week it became apparent that the loss of 35 lives might have been prevented if regulations had been properly followed and appropriate precautions taken. Yeah. It was deemed an accident. Okay. Um, and on April 17th, was, was that originally on April 17th, was that whole thing? I don't remember. Oh, no, yeah. The next day on April 17th, sorry, well, Friday, Mickey Mantle. Mm-hmm. Hit a 565-foot home run at Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C. Mantle's home run is believed to be the longest home run in baseball history by many historians. Wow. So just put that in your butt and poop it. Yeah, really. And then April 20th was the 57th Boston Marathon, won by Kaizo Yamada of Japan. Oh. You want to guess when he how, what the time was? What do you mean? What, what time he finished the marathon? No. You don't want to guess? I have no idea. How long does the marathon last? It was over two hours. Yeah. Two hours, 18 minutes, 51 seconds. It has, uh, no, I have no Does that mean anything to you? No, nothing at all. <laughs> April 24th, Winston Churchill was knighted by Queen Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. And on April 27th, the most important thing of this whole entire podcast and what you should take with you, listeners, what you should take with you is that on April 27th, 1953, wrestler Freddie, classy Freddie Blassie, coins the term pencil neck geek. 
for the first time. Oh. Hey, you pencil neck geek. He used to call everybody that. And this was the first time he said it. Wow. April 27th, 1953, Freddie Blassie coins the term pencil neck geek, and the world was changed right. and fixed for the better. Done. I think you're done. And then April 29th, the first U.S. experimental 3D TV broadcast showed an episode of Space Patrol on L.A. ABC affiliate KECA-TV. Okay. That was the last thing I have for this episode. All righty. It's time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. By History for Jerks. Thank you for listening. Thank you, guys. Rate, review, subscribe. Thanks for bearing with us when we're on vacation and we're kind of screwing around. Yes. Uh, but we're always screwing around. That's yeah, cool. that's pretty much it. Let bail through. Matt Truman, Ego Trip. Take it away, my brother. Bye-bye. Bye. We love you guys. Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time by their music.